You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. I want to share with you one of the four titles that historically the church has typically utilized to uh, describe this communion table. And I think it's good for you to know because even though some of these, uh, these terms will be more familiar in one denomination or church tribe than another, nonetheless, all of these terms provide both a historical and a theological background for understanding a little more holistically what this act of taking communion together with your local body, the significance it has grown to have among the body of Christ across the world. It's still one of the few things that we can all unify over, that even though we argue and fight over doctrine and theology and practice and politics and all of these things, at the end of the day, we stand together as people who were broken and whose lives were ravaged by sin, but have been liberated and set free because the powerful work of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel and being free from our sin, our sin forgiven, be uh, 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 free of our shame, forgiven of our sin, and we gather together every week to reorient ourselves around this great mystery. So, so some of the terms historically have been used is it's been called the Lord's Supper. How many of you were in traditions where you called it the Lord's Supper? All right, all right, about half of us. The Lord's Supper, it reminds us of the, of the uh, Jesus, the, the, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples and the invitation that he extends to all of us to dine with him as well. The primary, one of the metaphors for our salvation that Jesus used is, is the God the Father and the Son coming and making their home in us. And this idea of dining and the intimacy of dining it reminds us of that intimate call of Jesus. The second term, it's the one I've been using this morning, it's communion. I'm more familiar with that term. I'm comfortable with that term, but I'm, it's not the only one that has to be used. Communion is from the Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship. And so it reminds us that when we take communion, we are sharing both in the death and the risen life of our Lord as we commune with him. But I also think it also reminds us of the fact that on those days when we do that together, we're also communing, communing with one another as we take it. The third one is called the Eucharist. And probably if you were more from a higher church background or, or, or maybe Anglican or Lutheran or some of those, you might be more familiar with that term. Anybody use the term Eucharist growing up much? Okay, the numbers drop significantly, but uh, we are all glad that you're here. So the Eucharist, I really... In many ways, it's actually my favorite term. It's just not one that's used as much around these parts of the country, but I like it. Eucharist is from the Greek word for thank you. We are, we are thanking God for what he has done through Jesus Christ, just as Jesus gave thanks before serving the meal. And so when you read the narratives, it says he took the bread and he took the wine and Jesus gave thanks. And so we recognize that when Jesus established this meal, um, gratitude and thanksgiving were intended to be the atmosphere in which we participate. And so therefore, uh, ed the etymology of that Greek word for thank you is, is transliterated to Eucharist. So, the, so, so you might call it the Eucharist. And finally, uh, mass. Anyone call it mass growing up? One, two, okay, we got, oh, three, we got three. Uh, 
Now, I know that I don't have time to go into this fascinating history, but essentially the word mass is gonna be primarily utilized by those who grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. And I'll tell you, it is also one of my favorite words for referring to communion. Um, what, what it means is basically mass comes from the Latin word that means go, you were sent out which is why those services always crescendo with the taking of communion at mass because after communion, that signifies the time in which the body of Christ is called upon to be blessed and sent out into the world to be the body of Christ. That's the, that's the history there. So ascending eventually became um, part of the ending of, whole, of the Holy Communion service. And honestly, I'm hoping that we are gonna incorporate elements of all four of those words and their histories into what we do here on Sunday mornings as the months and years go by. So let's take a look at where we are going to begin. We begin in Luke chapter 22. Now, if you want to write, I think I may have put this in your notes. Uh, I think my notes are a little different yours, so I can't remember for sure. But I think, I think 1 Corinthians 11 is also in your notes. If not, you might write to the side, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. We're not going to read it because it's just Paul repeating this. But I just wanted you to see that it is both in the Gospels, but Paul also included it in his instructions for how the churches were supposed to be conducting their worship services. So we know it was a practice that was carried on beyond just that first group of apostles in the, in the upper room with in the room with Jesus, and it was, it was quickly a tradition that became commonplace among the early Christians. So it, it, we reflect on that, that final supper of Jesus with his apostles, though. And, and here in Luke 22, verses 14, and then dropping down to 19 and 20, we're told this, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm going to pause right there on, on that verse 15 um, because we're not going to go too deeply into this, but I want us to appreciate what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing is he's declaring what I am doing is I'm having this Passover suffer with you, supper with you. What they didn't realize at the time, it was technically going to be the last time Passover ever needed to be celebrated by the Jewish people. And so what Jesus does is when he declares, I'm having Passover with you all, and then we're gonna read in just a minute, he then takes the elements and he flips them around and he takes this observant of Passover, which would have been one of the high holy days for a Jewish believer, the day in which they commemorate being brought out as a nation of slaves as an, to, into a, an independent nation of Yahweh. And so the Passover celebrated that deliverance from Egypt and the protection that they had over death that was cast over that nation. Why? Because the blood of the lamb was on the posts of their doors. This Passover meal was the genesis of their national identity. Both their civil and religious life. And what Jesus says is, I'm having this last Passover, and then a few verses later, he's gonna say, and by the way, this is all about me. This bread is my body, and this wine is my blood. Now, we're used to that, that's not offensive. But if you can imagine me coming up and saying, the, after much prayer and reflection, 
The elders came to me as the appointed leader of this community. And, um, and because of the significance of my work, from here forward, we're no longer gonna celebrate Christmas on December 25th. We're gonna make that a celebration of my birthday on December 25th. Now you can still do all the customs and give each other presents and so forth, but as a community, what we are commemorating is my birthday. Well, I'm pretty sure if I made that move and attempted it, I would be in the unemployment line fairly quickly. And rightly so. I am taking our high holy day, the coming of Christ, and making it about me. But you have to understand, this is essentially what Jesus is doing in this passage right here. He is saying this and saying, I'm going to tell you guys, you need to rethink all of this. Because all of this has always been about me. So then he goes on and says the offensive part. I've, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Some variations of it in the other gospels add at the end of it. And so we're doing, this meal is about the work of Jesus. And it has some, and I want you to see the way Jesus connects communion with the now obsolete observance of Passover. Now, again, I don't not obsolete in the sense of, I know, I know that Jewish believers still follow Passover. I mean it's obsolete in the way that Jesus is constructing this conversation and in the way the early Jewish Christians came to think about communion because they didn't think about it as the Passover land in Egypt, but rather as the liberation that's been brought through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's taken this commemorative supper and made it about himself. So, in taking communion, there are two ideas that I want us to leave here fresh in our hearts and minds, and I hope that these two ideas begin to inspire and inform your own participation at the communion table. In taking communion, we are remembering and celebrating our participation in the new covenant and a second exodus. We are commemorating and celebrating our participation in a new covenant and in a new exodus, which has resulted in the creation of a new nation that isn't bound by ethnicity and, and, and tribal boundaries, but it is a new people of God who's been created from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So in Hebrews 8, 10 through 13, here's what we are participating in at communion. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. On that day, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. 
Now I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Now, he or she who wrote those words, we don't know for sure at this point, wrote this letter, and the title of the letter is to the what? Hebrews. This entire letter is written to help first century Christians who are moving from the practice of the old covenant faith into the practice of the new covenant expression of faith. And as you can imagine, they're having a really difficult time wrapping their heads around this. And so the book of Hebrews is written to them to help them understand the new covenant's relationship to the old covenant. And this is what he says. This is what the new covenant is about, this inward work that God is going to do. My friends, this is what we participate in. We participate in this new covenant because we've been drawn by the Spirit. Whether you're aware of it or not, the truth of Scripture is that God has now written his laws on your mind and he's put them on your heart and he's taken away the heart of uh, the stone and given you a heart of flesh. It's an inward work. And here's the thing. Do you see what this new covenant celebrates? Teachers as far as informers or encouragers are great, but ultimately you don't even need a teacher. Why? Because God's laws are on, written on your mind and they're written on your heart. You don't need a preacher to say to you, know the Lord. You know the Lord and you can blossom and flourish in a beautiful life of shalom if you'll just begin to practice a rhythm of life where you are being attuned to the voice of the Spirit. You don't need another podcast or another guru or another book. It's fine if you want to indulge in those things. I do. But I'm just saying that it's not needed because God lives in you and his laws are on your heart. Will you dare to trust that? Because what happens is most of us don't trust it and so we create a spirituality that is built upon the traditions of man-made religion, even Christian religion. And then we begin to rely on that system as the way of maintaining our spirituality. But that system never promised to bring you life and life abundantly. That system never promised I will remember your sins no more. In fact, that system profits by keeping you remembering about your sins. And that guilt and that shame can be alleviated not by trusting that Jesus removed it, but by participating in the system that we've constructed for you. Do you see how deceptive? Do you see how? This is why man-made theological systems are an attempt They are an attempt to try to get people to live out the new covenant in the modality of the old covenant. And it will not work. Because when Jesus came and removed all 
world need for mediation between God and man? Look at what the writer of Hebrews said. He didn't say, so enjoy the new covenant with a little bit of your old covenant. That's not what he said. He said, this covenant is obsolete and it will soon disappear until about four centuries later, then well-meaning Christians are gonna resurrect old covenant modality for new covenant living, which is why then we have a whole new priesthood and a whole new garments and all that. What are we doing? We're just creating a new old covenant modality for the new covenant. My friends, that's why we're so miserable. It was never intended to be mix and match. All mediated spiritualities between God and man are done away with in the work of Christ. Why? Because Christ destroyed the main problem, which is sin, which he condemned in the flesh in his death on the cross. So we are celebrating that we don't need any old covenant modality. We are going to celebrate the beauty of this new inclusive covenant of the inward heart, not the outward control of behavior. And that's what we are celebrating. We are celebrating our participation in that new covenant. Secondly, it's also a new exodus. And we read this a few weeks ago, Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. Always thanking the Father, he has enabled you to share the inheritance that belongs to his people. So you see what he's doing? Now the, co the new covenant goes public and you're part of it now. Who live in the light? Look at this. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. We are celebrating our new exodus. And make no mistake, Paul didn't use that language accidentally. He used language that was intended to conjure up this image of the exodus of liberation. And he says, just like those ancient Jews experienced their exodus into a new identity from slavery to sons, so you have been liberated by a new exodus to come out of your identity as slaves and enjoy the blessings of being a son and daughter of the Most High. That's what we celebrate when we gather. It's not just an empty ritual. That is what we are celebrating when we gather together, and it's so critically important that we understand that especially that we remember what we're celebrating is that God has chosen to remember our sins no more. Now, we're in Bible Belt, Oklahoma, though. I have pressure on me to answer a few objections and a few questions. Let's start with the easy one because maybe we'll run out of time and I can avoid the difficult one altogether. Why do we celebrate the Eucharist every week? There are three reasons I will give you. Number one, because Jesus commanded it and the early church practiced it. You can read the scriptures there. I'm not gonna read those to you because you can do that yourself. Um, number two, and, and this is a new one maybe to some of you, and that's why we really wanna emphasize what we've just been talking about. Because, number two is because we want to create a weekly practice that reminds us that we are forgiven and reconciled people who are called to share our forgiveness and reconciliation with others. 
Yeah, I like those head nods. That's as close to Pentecostal as we get some here and here sometimes, that's fine. But it's enough to motivate me to read it again as though you just jumped up and shouted, hey man, and wave a hanky. Because we want to create a weekly practice that reminds us that we are forgiven and reconciled people who are called to share our forgiveness and reconciliation with others. Hebrews 10.10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the holy offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Which is why the old covenant is now obsolete. There is no need. And number three, finally, because we want to remember Jesus' treatment of us so that we are reminded of how we are called to treat others. That's why it's communion. Because it's not just about God and the world. It's also about God and me. But it's not just about God and me. It's also about me and others. And me and my posture to the rest of the world. Am I a voice of judgment and condemnation? Or do I simply follow the Spirit and walk the earth as the pardon of God? That is our choice every week when we gather at the communion table. All right, now then, darn it, I still have some time. Let's wade into a little controversy. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of joking because honestly, this is a controversial topic for believers. And I mean, <laughs> sometimes it is hard to stay connected to the body of Christ. It just is. There have been lots of seasons where I've only stayed connected with the body of Christ because I'm connected with the head and Jesus tells me to stay connected to the body. But it can be hard. It can be hard when the body of Christ is discipled by systems of man rather than the liberation of the new covenant because sometimes the body of Christ just doesn't act like the head, does it? And, and it's hard. I have no bitterness for those who walk away from church because 100% of the time when I've sat and heard their stories, I think they probably made the healthiest decision for that season of their life because of the pain and the toxicity that was being created by that. And so when it comes to the new covenant, it just is, I mean, when it comes to communion, it's amazing to me how deeply ungracious believers can get when it comes to communion. In, in emphasizing a closed communion table or in maybe even considering if you look about it differently than they do, you might actually be a heretic and not an actual believer at all. There are some people that hold that conviction. So I wanna take a moment and to address that because what I've learned in Southern Oklahoma, there have even been people that have been taught they should be afraid of communion. Has anyone ever been threatened that if you do it in an unworthy manner, God might kill you? I'll raise both of my hands to that. I've been told that. I thought that. That used to give me great consternation. I was glad to be in churches that didn't take communion every week because the one thing that I knew for certain, I didn't always know how or why, but I always knew I'd be taking it in an unworthy manner. But I have filled so many conversations of people who are crippled by that idea. So, this is our living room. Let's roll up our sleeves for a few minutes and talk about it. What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? 
Well, let's first of all, let's take a look at the passage that causes so much consternation. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Everyone say the phrase discerning the body. Because we're going to come back to that. Because you know what? I've never heard a single preacher or teacher that was threatening the congregation over communion ever highlight specifically what Paul says the problem is, which is they do it without discerning the body. That's what he says. He doesn't say they're doing it while they secretly watch rated R movies on Netflix or they secretly dance a little too sensual on, at the club on Friday nights. I mean, like all of these things, like if you're doing this, this, and this, you better be careful when you come to the Lord's table. This is not what Paul says. What Paul highlights is there's danger here because they haven't discerned the body. It says, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Granted, I'm up against a little obstacle hill this morning. That sounds pretty scary. I mean, that scares me away from communion. I don't want to eat and drink judgment on myself and then get weak and ill, which I tend to already be, but I certainly don't want to take it all the way to death. And so here's the thing that's interesting here. Um, it, it doesn't say that God kills people. That's not what it says. It just says, you eat and drink without discerning the body, therefore some of you are weak and ill, and then some of you have died or gone to sleep. Hmm, intriguing. I know, let's go on. Verse 30, that is one, uh, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, first of all, I don't have time to unpackage all the elements here, but number one, however you read in that scripture and come away with what it means to be judged, if you come away with condemnation, you've missed the point that Paul is making. Because what Paul is saying is, we're celebrating this in part because we know we'll never be condemned. So then, what can it mean? Paul's instructions are for participants to examine themselves, first of all. This is really important. <laughs> There's a phrase in there Paul uses in Corinthians 11, examine yourselves. Guess how 100% of the time that we've had, that I have engaged in a conversation that was controversial, almost without question, that verse is reinterpreted. And whenever we're discussing it, it is as though they're not reading examine yourselves. They're coming to me because they read from that, examine your brothers and sisters. Examine others to see whether or not they are worthy of communion. Okay, that's between you and God if you wanna do that, but don't pretend that that's what the scripture teaches. Paul never says that. He says, examine yourselves. 
not examine other, uh, other folks. So that's, that's, that's important. Unworthy manner, what does this mean? We, we, well, we, listen, my friends, we do not need to speculate beyond the text to understand what this means. It's not controversial at all. Note verse 27. Verse 27 has the word in it that says, uh, therefore. Um, now, if verse 27 says the word therefore, then we have to ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore, hermeneutics, biblical interpretation 101. You guys are all so smart. Get, an ex, get yourself an extra slice of pizza at Papa's today on the buffet. You've deserved it. So what is the therefore, therefore? It means that these instructions are given considering what has just been said. So just look to the text. Well, let's go up a bit. Let's start in verse 17. What does the text say? But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and, the, and, and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a fun little bit of logic. We won't go into it though. Uh, when you come together, Look at this. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, I don't understand why this is such a controversy for everyone. Look at what Paul says. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. So immediately we know contextually, he's not talking about this practice that we're pursuing this morning or every single week. He's talking about something else. What might that be? So glad you asked. He says, uh, um, where am I? Oh, verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? It's a great next word, I think. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For one thing, what you have to remember is that these churches, and in fact, this would be so useful if modern churches would respect the hermeneutic of his story, their story, our story, and my story. Because you can't just jump in, rip something out of con context and apply it to another one. So, <laughs> one of the things we have to remember is when the New Testament is giving instructions to a local church, they're not giving instructions to a legal incorporated organization. So in some sense, a lot of those things don't apply to what we do in modern times. He's not talking to a corporation that can have anywhere from 200 to 20,000 members and get tax-free status for their donations and give contribution credit. That's not what he's talking about. That's the breakdown. He's talking about gatherings of people who met in a home. And they probably met in the home of one of the more wealthy uh, parishioners, which means they could accommodate about maybe 50 people. And what would have happened, where they would have accommodated this group of people would have been in two places, the dining hall and the courtyard. 
In the dining hall, there would be food. In the courtyard, there would be overflow. What Paul describes here is the fact that they were celebrating the, the communion at the end of what they would call love feasts, which they would get together and have a great big feast. But what they were actually doing is they would come and bring food, and the wealthy would sit in the dining hall while the less wealthy members were out in the courtyard watching on. Those who didn't bring food probably didn't bring it because they couldn't afford it, neither for everyone else nor for themselves. And so here you have this new covenant community that, that has grown out of a tradition in the book of Acts where they're, they're happily sharing with one another. And you've got these Corinthians. Now, granted, look, these Corinthians, they're born again, but listen, they're Christians gone wild. They still have some work to do in their process of discipleship, and they came out of extreme pagan ritualistic um, cults and practices in which these kinds of practices were regularly pursued. And so here they are, they're repeating some of the same pagan practices by coming together for the Lord's Supper, having a meal beforehand, and the rich and the privileged are enjoying indulging themselves while the poor go away hungry, but not just indulging themselves with the food, since they're not sharing that wine, it's all going into their belly. And so they're all getting sick. Now, we live in America. We've all struggled with putting boundaries around our hedonistic lives. Guess what happens if you live like that? If you never share and you overindulge in gluttony and drunkenness? Does anybody know what the physical consequences of that lifestyle is? You get weak, you get ill, and sometimes you die if you don't temper that lifestyle. Paul is just observing that reality because of the way they're choosing to function in their community. So they participated in divisions among the body. They didn't gather for the Lord's Supper, but they were gathering to eat a common supper in which wealthier participants were indulging themselves and getting drunk and not sharing with those in needs. Their actions were humiliating those who had less and who went away hungry. Paul is rebuking the culture of pride, selfishness, and neglect that the Corinthians had created in their gatherings. We can also understand what Paul means by this when he gives them the instructions on how to fix it. He doesn't say, make sure you didn't sin the previous 48 hours before you come to the Lord's table. He says, look, there's two easy ways that you can correct this. Wait for one another. Let the less fortunate go through the food line in front of you. And here's another real practical thing. If you can afford it, won't you just eat at home? Quit coming to church uh, hungry and just, just eat at home before you come so that way you're not even tempted to overindulge. That's it. He's not giving warnings about people dying at the communion table, nothing like that. And what grieves my heart about this is that this is supposed to commemorate the new covenant of grace and mercy and the inward powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And somehow I'm supposed to believe at the same time that a false attitude is something that God's gonna strike me down over. I mean, is that God even the God of this new covenant that we celebrate? Personally, I don't think so. Personally, that God is an insult to the God that I see revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, you have to work through that because your conscience has to be cleared, but I just want you to consider that as you process some of these passages. Which leads me to my final point, 
before we gather together for communion. Should I refrain from celebrating the Eucharist or communion or Lord's Supper if I am struggling with sin? Amazing the number of people that believe, yeah, I need to stay away. I need to stay in my seat and sit here with my shame because I'm not worthy to go to this table. Guess what, sweetheart? None of us are. None of us are. So the answer's not that complicated in my mind. Should I refrain from taking communion if I'm struggling with sin? The answer is no. No. The table is for sinners who recognize their need for forgiveness and new life. And remember, at his table, our Lord served a doubter, a denier, and a betrayer. A doubter, a denier, and a betrayer. Now, I know we're not going to compare. We're not supposed to compare. But I'm thinking if Judas got included at that table, I haven't been that bad, right? But this is who Jesus served and had at his table, a doubter, a denier, and a betrayer. So would the worship team come forward? And what we're going to do this morning is a little different. So worship team comes forward. We're going to ask that you... Come down the aisle, starting in the back corners, coming down and coming around and receiving the communion elements. Those in the middle aisle, you'll come down from that corner and come back around to your seat. And I just this morning, I'm going to ask you to hold on to those elements till the end, and then I'm going to come back up, and we're going to all take those elements together as a common expression of our participation in communion. And in that time, I'm going to teach you or I'm going to share with you a couple of prayers that if you don't know what to say with your children when you're taking communion, these are prayers you can just pull out of your Bible and, and, and read pray them uh, with your children, or you can do your own. You don't have to do these. These are just for your help. So the bread on, our Lord, on the, the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it after giving thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. So we pray, Lord, thank you for entering my brokenness so that I could be healed. Lead me also to enter the brokenness of others so that they may be healed by your love. I eat this in remembrance of you. He then took the wine and poured it and said, this is my blood, the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood so that I could experience the forgiveness of my sins. Lead me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. I drink this in remembrance of you. Would the prayer team please come forward? If there is anything that we can pray with you about, either that the Lord's speaking to you this morning or perhaps you've never started your journey with Jesus and you would like someone to pray with you about that, or if you have a physical, emotional, or financial need that you were seeking God's wisdom for, we just want to gather around you as your brothers and sisters and pray with you if, if, if we can be there for you in that way. Let's end this time of common communion by reciting a, a, a liturgical prayer that's often prayed at the end of communion services together. You can pray silently or you're welcome to pray aloud with me if you prefer. Thank you, O Christ, 
for this feast of life. We are fed by your love. We are strengthened by your life. We are sent forth into this world to live into the visions God has laid on our hearts. We are now commissioned to feed as we have been fed, forgive as we have been forgiven, love as we have been loved. Thanks be to God. Amen.